Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 21. And we are still uh, looking at uh, the Apostle Paul and his uh, return trip back to uh, Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. So we'll be looking at uh, the first 14 verses of Acts chapter 21. And we're primarily looking at an interesting situation that created a, uh, a problem, if you will, I guess you could say a problem in interpreting God's will. And this is something that's happening between the Apostle Paul and about everybody else that's around him in terms of whether or not he should go to Jerusalem or not. There's not agreement. And so it raises a lot of interesting issues in uh, the complexity sometimes of determining uh, God's will. So as we begin to read through this, the first part of it is basically just uh, Luke recounting the, uh, the travel that they have. Let's see, am I on? Nope. There we go. There we go. The travels, as he's still heading back to Jerusalem, he's not in Jerusalem yet, but he's on his way back. So let me begin reading in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1. We'll kind of follow the path uh, that he takes uh, down to Caesarea from Miletus. So he ended chapter 20 in Miletus, so he's He's on his way ultimately to Jerusalem. So I'll begin reading Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1, reading the inspired Word of God. When we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Petara. Now Kos and Rhodes are islands, so they're sailing past the islands. They end up Uh, for a brief stop there in Petara. Verse 2, And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, And they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home again. So this is another one of those occasions for... Paul is gathering with the believers and they kneel on the beach. You know, that happened at Miletus when he was leaving the elders of the church of Ephesus. Very similar. They get down on their knees and they pray. And again, uh, Paul oftentimes prayed kneeling. But uh, they brought their, their wives and their children and they're all there with the Apostle Paul. They love this man of God. And uh, they're sorry to see him go because they know that this uh, prophecies of him 
awaiting bonds and afflictions in Jerusalem is, is, is ahead of him. So they gather together, show their love to him uh, before he leaves. And then in verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. It's kind of an interesting observation here that Luke throws in that Philip, the evangelist who had evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch, remember, by the divine direction of God, and also had evangelized the Samaritans, now had settled and made his permanent residence in Caesarea. And now he got married, apparently, and he had four daughters, and all four of them were prophetesses. So there were other churches that had prophetesses in them. Corinth had them. And Paul had to give some very specific instruction for them in 1 Corinthians 11. But it's just kind of an interesting observation that he makes here concerning the family of Philip. Verse 10. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hand and his feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since He would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, in this passage, we find that godly believers are disagreeing in the matter of how to interpret the Holy Spirit's messages about whether or not Paul should go to Jerusalem. So how do you determine God's will when you interpret the revelation of God's Word one way and somebody else disagrees with you and interprets it a different way? What if they strongly and adamantly tell you not to do what you believe God wants you to do? Are you right or wrong in following their counsel? Did Paul misinterpret God's will for his life? Some commentators actually uh, set forth that view. I think it's James Montgomery Boy says that Paul should not have gone to, to Jerusalem. Did Paul make a mistake in going to Jerusalem? Several times in this passage, the Spirit of God, possibly, we'll look at that in a second, is stirring up other people to tell Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. And yet he disregards that. And he goes anyway. So there's a conflict. And how do you interpret and understand the message of the Spirit of God that was coming through these prophets? So all of this is kind of an interesting uh, case study, if you will, and just some of the difficulties in understanding God's will. Now, there's no doubt in Paul's mind what God's will is for him. And we'll see that in just a moment. 
But it does raise this, this conflict because the Spirit of God is leading Paul one way and the Spirit of God apparently is leading others to tell him to go a, a different way. So it just raises up a lot of interesting questions. Let's begin by looking at Paul's own Spirit-led determination to go to Jerusalem. We've got to start here to appreciate the conflict that he was uh, going through when everybody was telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. So let's back up to Acts chapter 19 and let's look at verse 21. Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Now this we read, let me read the verse. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. After he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now look at that. Look at the expression, purposed in the Spirit. Now I have a New American Standard in front of me and it puts a lowercase s on spirit. That would be his human spirit. And other translations follow this. The NIV, the King James. But other translations have a capital S on the word spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. Okay? So part of the question here is when Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, is he just making a plan within his own heart and mind? Or is the Spirit of God in some way leading and guiding him in going to Jerusalem? So that's part of the question that is raised. Now, again, the translations vacillate. So it's not an easy question to resolve. However, I would point out that if it was Paul's human spirit, if he just purposed in his own spirit to go to Jerusalem, his own mind, his own desires, uh, then normally when Luke communicates it that way, he uses a personal pronoun. For example, some of the other ways when Luke is writing, uh, referencing one's own human spirit, he uses the pronouns my or her or his spirit. Like in Luke 1, My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That's her human spirit, not the Holy Spirit. My spirit, human spirit. In Luke 8, her spirit returned to her. This is a girl that was raised from the dead. Uh, Luke 23, 46, Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm, uh, one of the Psalms, He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's His human spirit of his human nature. In Acts 7.59, Stephen, as he's being stoned, cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then in Acts 17.16, Paul was waiting for them in Athens and his spirit was provoked. So normally if it's the human spirit that's involved, most of the time, Luke is going to use a personal pronoun to make that clear. But he doesn't do that in Acts 19.21. He says, Paul purposed in the Spirit. So, probably, without 100% certainty, he made this plan in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was guiding him in doing this. That may not be right, but it would seem like according to the way Luke normally communicates these things, and he doesn't use a personal pronoun here, purposed in my Spirit, 
that we might assume that it is the Holy Spirit. So he had convictions to go to Jerusalem. Okay, these are solid, strong convictions from the Spirit of God in one way or another. Of course, in in looking at this, what does this phrase mean anyway? Even if it's the Holy Spirit, He purposed in the Spirit. Does that mean the Holy Spirit told him, Paul, go to Jerusalem? Well, that's not clear. And oftentimes in the book of Acts, Luke has the Holy Spirit's words actually quoted. Like later on, we're going to see in uh, Acts 21, the Holy Spirit said. Okay, well, that's pretty clear. But here it's, he purposed in the Spirit. What does that mean? Again, it's a phrase that uh, the commentators will interpret in many different ways. Is it an impression that he sensed was coming from the Spirit of God? An impression that he needed to go to Jerusalem? Was it an impulse or is it speaking of the influence of the Spirit? This word in in the Greek is a uh, If you look it up in any major Greek lexicon, you'll find it has about 12 different major nuanced uses in the New Testament. So it has a wide variety of of possible meanings. He purposed in the Spirit. Does that mean he purposed this under the control of the Spirit, in communion with the Spirit, uh, submitting to the Spirit, or because the Spirit actually told him to do it? We, We don't know for sure. The language is not that clear. But if the Spirit does refer to the Holy Spirit, it resulted in a rock-solid conviction that Paul was being led by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. Okay, there's another verse we have to at least consider when we're looking at Paul's Spirit-led determination to go to Jerusalem in Acts 20, verse 22 and 23. And now behold... Bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now most all of the translations will capitalize the letter S on the Spirit here, so it's probably the Holy Spirit. And so what he's communicating is that, look, I am... I am bound by the Spirit of God to go. This is uh, what God has put on my heart. Uh, I really don't have a choice in the matter. I am bound. I am bound up. My spirit is bound by the Holy Spirit. And again, that can refer to Him sensing that He is a captive to the will of the Spirit. That he's obligated to obey the Spirit of God. I'm bound by the Spirit of God. So that seems to be pretty clear that this was a Holy Spirit direction given to him by the Spirit of God. So his motivations obviously were good and going. The providence of God was opening the way for him to go. He had money to take the ship trips that would cost money. They had favorable winds to get to the next destination. So the providence of God was was apparently giving him an, an open door in this matter. His motivations, if you analyze them by the Word of God, are very honorable. I remember Peter, James, and John had um, 
reminded Paul in one of his visits to Jerusalem not to forget the poor saints in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. He was very eager not to do that. So he's bringing this large money gift from all the, the, the uh, churches in uh, Asia Minor and also in Macedonia and Achaia, bringing these money gifts back to Jerusalem to help the poor saints. So it's an honorable motivation. Nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to help the poor. Uh, he was also wanting to go to encourage and stimulate the love and unity between the Jewish church in Jerusalem and the Gentile churches out in the uh, diaspora. So he hoped to advance love and unity. That's a, that's a godly motivation. So you test his motives in going. They sound, they, uh, they are sound. Providence of God was leading the way. He feels bound in spirit. Spirit must have communicated in a very powerful way that he needed to go there. But then he starts running into all these other people that had a different view in mind. So now we turn to Acts 21 verse 4. So now he arrives at Tyre and uh, he's looking up the disciples there and he says that we, we stay there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So what's going on here? The Spirit of God is telling Paul to go. The Spirit of God is telling all these other disciples not to go. Don't go to Jerusalem. How do we understand this? Well, I doubt in one way, some people may say, well, the Holy Spirit is, is contradicting Himself. The only way I could ever see that is if it was a test of Paul's resolve to obey the, the personal testimony of the Spirit that he had received. But I doubt that's the right answer. Uh, but you do have to grapple with what's, what does it mean here in verse 4 that they kept telling, and by the way, he's there for seven days, and probably throughout that whole time period, people are telling him through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't set foot in Jerusalem. So what's going on? What's the Holy Spirit? What does this phrase mean, through the Spirit? And again, we would understand this to be the Holy Spirit. Almost all the translations and commentaries would agree it's the Holy Spirit. What could be involved here, and this is probably the way I would take it, is this is kind of a broad general expression through the Spirit. I don't think the Holy Spirit was telling them specifically, tell Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. I think what it may be communicating is that the Spirit of God was telling them also that bonds and afflictions await Paul in Jerusalem. And their conclusion from that is therefore don't step foot in Jerusalem. The phrase through the Spirit is general enough and broad enough that it can easily include what we find in these other passages to make it consistent with that. So they were telling Paul based on the information the Spirit was giving them that He was going to suffer when He went to Jerusalem. And their response to that prophecy, which is consistent, bonds and afflictions await me in, in Jerusalem. Their response to that was, don't go, don't set foot in Jerusalem. Now that was motivated through the Spirit because the Spirit gave them the prophecy that suffering's awaiting there. 
but then they draw their own conclusion from it, don't go. And that's going to be exactly what we're going to see in the next passage. But the revelation or the prophecy is totally accurate. Bonds and afflictions were going to hit Paul once he got there. But their conclusion as to God's will in the matter was probably misguided. They misunderstood God's ultimate sovereign purpose in Paul going to Jerusalem. And so their response is, don't set foot in Jerusalem. So their conviction was clear, Paul, don't go. So here he is for seven days and the tense of the Greek here is that they kept telling him over and over and over, the Spirit has given us a revelation, a prophecy, don't go. Now the prophecy was not to, not to go, but sufferings await you and our response to that is, Paul, please, please don't go. Now that's exactly what we're going to see down in verse 10 and 11. So look at the next passage. And as they were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now we've met Agabus before back in Acts chapter 11. He prophesied there would be a great famine throughout the world and it came true exactly as he prophesied. So he is a prophet of God. But here he's going to give more specific details on what awaited Paul in Jerusalem. So in verse 11, he came to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Now it sounds like he's given a direct quotation of the words of the Holy Spirit. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. That's the prophecy. Absolutely correct. Now by the way, next week, I'm going to come back to this passage and deal with it from the perspective that there are some who believe that Agabus's prophecy was a mingling of truth and error. And they use that as kind of a test case for a New Testament gift of prophecy that's different than the Old Testament that can be a mixture of truth and error. So, I'm going to deal with that next week um, because I think we need, because it's becoming very popular and a lot of believers even within the reform movement are embracing this and I think we should comment and meditate on that. So we'll deal with that next week. But the prophecy in verse 11 is clear. Paul's going to be bound with his own belt, delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. So he's going to be arrested. He's going to be incarcerated. And that's, Consistent with what the Spirit has been saying all along. Now, as a prophet, uh, Agabus is using uh, methods that um, some of the great prophets of the Old Testament used. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they always used, or they sometimes used visual symbols to communicate God's Word. For example, Isaiah walked nearly naked around, symbolizing God's judgment on, on Egypt and Cush, Jeremiah's linen undergarment, which he hid in, at the Euphrates River, was ruined as an, as an outward symbol and sign that the hearts of the, of the Israelites were ruined in their relationship with God. They had, they had been corrupted and rotten. 
Ezekiel built a little miniature siege wall against Jerusalem to, to prophesy outwardly that eventually the Babylonians would come and lay siege to Jerusalem. So Agabus is in that good standing. He's using Paul's own belt as an object lesson to warn him of what lies ahead. The response to this clear prophecy is found in verse 12. When we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So here it is again. Here you have all of these godly people hearing the same prophecy, concluding the same conclusion, don't go. Don't go. And in verse 12 it says, that they began begging Him, don't go to Jerusalem. If Paul goes to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested. He'll be thrown in jail. He'll be afflicted. Possibly put to death. He'll be taken out of action. And they needed him in their mind. They needed the Apostle Paul. Logically, they could see nothing good coming from this decision of Paul. They heard the the prophecy of the Spirit of God. And they interpreted it totally differently than Paul himself. And this is really, it speaks to within the church how we can differ on interpreting the message of the Spirit of God at times. He'll be taken out of action. They can't see anything beneficial coming from that. So they beg Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Now notice in verse 12, notice that pronoun, we... Who does the we refer to? Luke and the other seven traveling companions with the Apostle Paul. So imagine this. You've got Luke, one of his closest, dearest, godly friends, and these other seven men committed to doing God's will and serving Christ, hearing the prophecy, and they, along with all the other local residents, all ganged up against Paul and said, do not go to Jerusalem. Quite a conflict. These are godly men that are are making the exact opposite conclusion from the prophecy that the Spirit is giving. Now their response is totally understandable. They loved Paul. In their minds, he was too valuable to take off the battlefield. It would be like being in a great battle with your enemy and you take your leading, most brilliant general and you pull him off the the theater of, of conflict, the battlefield. You don't do that. And in their mind, if Paul goes to Jerusalem, it's not going to be good. They're in the middle of a great battle, a gospel battle against the forces of darkness and evil. They don't want Paul to be arrested and sidelined. So these are godly believers who hear the revelation and form a conviction that disagrees with what Paul believed was God's will for his life. Certainly reflects their desire to see the gospel advance, for the church to thrive. They had good motives too. Their motives were, were certainly honorable. They had the best of the church in mind. 
But I think they were out of step with God's sovereign and infinitely wise will for the Apostle Paul. They fail to realize that God can do whatever He wants to with any one of us. That there's none of us that are expendable. It's Christ who builds His church, not Paul. It's Christ who uses whom He chooses, where He chooses, for as long as He chooses. And when their time is up, He replaces them with someone else. Paul even told the Corinthians that when he came to them and preached the Gospel, he says, look, I want you to understand, I did not come to you in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. They probably had too elevated a view of the Apostle Paul. Not, I mean... Who wouldn't have an elevated view of this incredible mighty man of God? But they thought he was making a bad decision in going to Jerusalem. And I think all this again should teach us a measure of humility. Because they both base their convictions on a revelation of the Spirit of God. It seemed that no one really agreed with Paul. He was kind of like the only one who stood firm on the conviction that God had given him that he must go. So how does he respond in verse 13? This is why I think is really insightful. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I mean, he is moved by their begging by their imploring Him not to go. He's deeply touched by their love, their affection, their concern. He understands their motives. He's not questioning their motives. He's questioning their interpretation of the prophecy. But He was moved. He was stirred. So what are you, what are you trying to do? Weeping and breaking my heart. Because he was in such a bond of fellowship and love and unity with these dear believers. And for them to oppose him was, was deeply uh, troubling to him. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't blast them for being stiff-necked. Now, I would think if the Spirit of God directly had told Paul to go, he could have just said, look, brothers, I understand, but the Spirit of God spoke to me. And he told me, I need to go. If the Spirit didn't do that to him, the Spirit put such a strong impression that he was bound by the Spirit to, to do it. Either way. But his response is very gracious and humble. How do you respond when people differ with you? Do you respond in a gracious, humble way? I think he did. And then in verse 13, he says, and Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So he says, look, I understand your heart. I understand your concern. But I'm ready to die for Christ. I'm ready to go to Jerusalem. And if I die, I die. And whatever awaits me, I'm ready for it. 
His resolve was made of steel forged in fire. He would not be deterred. So how do they respond? Verse 14. And since we would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Now again, I think this is an interesting response. They didn't rebuke Paul. I mean, they were responding in good faith to the prophecy they received. They didn't call him a heretic. They didn't break fellowship with him. They rather humbly submitted and entrusted him to the wise hand of providence, to the hand of God. They respected his conviction, though they didn't agree with his conviction. And I think again, that teaches us something. Of course, you know, I don't know if anybody's going to stand up and rebuke the Apostle Paul anyway. I mean, you're in trouble if you think you're going to do that. But they, they back off. They acknowledge that though they tried to persuade him, they were convinced he was wrong. He should not go to Jerusalem. The Spirit's leading in his heart and life had so convinced him that was God's will that they just said, okay, the Lord's will be done. We entrust you into the hands of God. I think too often times within the church we're too quick to pass judgment on people that we differ with. Maybe it's just a matter of Christian uh, conscience. Maybe it's in how we interpret Scripture, but we judge them. We don't just say, well, it's a, you know, we can agree to disagree. We judge them. Call them heretics. Want to run them out of the church or something like that over issues that. We just differ in. And I think the response speaks to the love and the graciousness of the Spirit of God that was in their hearts. They were absolutely convinced that Paul should not go. Paul was absolutely convinced that he should go. And there was an impasse. And how do brothers deal with that conflict? They graciously respond. Now, this is not an issue of the Gospel. It's not an issue of the doctrine of the Trinity or the deity of Christ. You understand this is on the issue of really a personal leading of God in the life of the Apostle Paul. So we've got to put it down on the level where it belongs. But I think it's quite uh, telling. Uh, James says, don't speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Now again, there are times when we do judge one another. Church discipline, things like that. But in this kind of a context, James is emphasizing that we treat one another with grace and humility. So, trying to wrap up some thoughts from this. Here's some things to think about when it comes to Dealing with conflict in your life, trying to discern God's will in a matter where there's not unanimous guidance or direction or clarity. What do you do? Well, obviously, you always go to the Word of God because that's our authority, right? You always begin with Scripture. We take our convictions, our impressions, and they must be weighed and evaluated by Scripture. Are your motivations and reasons for doing what you want to do in line with God's Word? Does it measure up to God's moral law? 
Are your desires in line with Scripture? Do are you out to honor God ultimately, or are you just seeking to advance yourself? So you always begin with with Scripture because that is our authority. Now we don't have prophets today, I don't believe. So Scriptures are our ultimate and sufficient authority. And that's where we ultimately should go. So don't just go by your heart's desire. Those desires need to be tested. Uh, Don't do what was done in the movie David. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I don't recommend it. But I saw it on TV and I thought, well, David, it's a biblical character. I wonder what kind of heresies will be in this movie. So Richard Greer is David. Now that's going to tell you already what, how it's going to end. It's not going to end well. So he's on his deathbed and Solomon, his son, comes into him to get David's final dying words of wisdom and counsel before he passes away. And so what does David tell his son Solomon? He's about to be king in his place. He turns to him and his voice is weak. And these are the final words, most important words. And he looks up at his son and he says, just follow your heart. And I wanted to vomit on the floor right at that point. I didn't. I held it in. It was tough. But he says, follow your heart. Now that's, that's, go to the Scriptures. That's not what David told Solomon. Follow the Scriptures. That's what he told him. But Hollywood, why would anybody want to follow your heart anyway? I mean, the heart needs to be weighed and tested by Scripture. As Jeremiah tells us, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You're going to follow your heart? And yet, Psalm 37 tells us, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. But the desires have been pruned and cleaned and directed by delighting in the Lord. So we got to begin with the Word of God. But what if the Scriptures don't specifically address the issue that you're facing? A lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times we have to look at the broad general principles, but what if it doesn't give us the the necessary guidance that we're looking for. Well, then you do what best glorifies God and desire His will over our will. And then we make a decision by faith and we move forward. Trust providence. But this is not always easy to do. Um, So the first thing is, whenever wrestling with a decision with mixed feelings or you've got mixed voices, you're not sure, make sure you go to Scripture first. That's our authoritative guide. Second thing we can glean from this passage is that uh, God's will may involve suffering. That was certainly true for Paul's life. Now, his friends didn't want him to suffer. They didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. But God's will for Paul's life was that he go to Jerusalem and that entailed him suffering. And Paul was willing to do that. Sometimes God's will for you will involve suffering and pain and difficulty. That even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for thou art with me. We have His promise that He's always with us. 
suffering and carrying our cross is part of our sanctification. And God will give us the strength we need to accomplish His will in those matters. But I think the point is that when, we, when we're wrestling with making a decision, do I go or do I not go? Do I take this job or don't take this job? Do I do this or I don't do this? Don't always make your primary consideration what will cost me the least, what will be the easiest path, what will bring about the least suffering, or what will be best for me physically or financially. And it's not that those concerns are wrong. I mean, they're important concerns. We would all rather to have all of those go in, in a good direction. But ultimately, we must acknowledge that God's will for us may put us in a position where it costs me more than another choice would, another decision. It's harder. It's more suffering. It's worse for my physical or financial uh, well-being. But that could be very well the will of God. God's plan is always the best plan, even if it entails suffering or loss. As Jim Elliott, the great missionary, died at the age of 29, was murdered by the Aka Indians, as you can remember, said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Sometimes the will of God requires us to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Glory in heaven. So the second thing, even though there's this big debate between Paul, do you go, do you not go? He believed God's will for him to go. Almost everybody else said, no, Paul, don't go. And yet he went because that was God's will for him and it involved suffering. Sometimes that may be the case with us. But if that is the case, know that God's in control and He's promised to work it all for good. And though we may have hardship and be cost dearly and suffer in this life, we have glory ahead of us. And that should encourage us to make the sacrifice if called upon by God because nothing can compare with the glory that's stored up for us in heaven. Another thing we see here is seek godly counsel. Now, Paul wasn't necessarily seeking godly counsel. The counsel came to him. I mean, I, it doesn't say that he asked him, brothers, I got this word from the, from the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. Do you think it's wise for me to go? No, he was determined to go. That was God's will. He wasn't really needing additional counsel. We need more counselors because that's what God tells us to do. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. But realize that if you, even if you get godly counsel, the counsel may not agree, may conflict. They certainly did them with Paul. Matter of fact, everybody who came and told him that, but let me counsel you, Paul, don't go. Do not go. All of them were against what the Spirit of God had put in his heart. So even though we should seek godly counsel, we need to realize that ultimately uh, we are bound to make our own decision having weighed their counsel. 
Now again, none of Paul's friends wanted him to go. Uh, and they disagreed with Paul. They interpreted the, the message of the Holy Spirit differently than Paul did. And when we get that kind of conflicting counsel, we should humbly listen to them, carefully weigh their advice. But ultimately, our responsibility is to make a decision to follow God's path of His leading in our life. Hopefully, it's in line with Scripture. Everything else is in line. And if someone differs with us, you follow your conscience if the Lord has placed that on your heart to that degree. The godly counsel can oftentimes help us to understand that. The fourth one, again, is just to follow the Lord's leading in your life. Ultimately, you are responsible for those decisions. You can't blame others. You, can't make a, you have to make a decision by faith. You have to follow the Word of God wherever it leads you. And if the Word of God is not clear, then you follow your conscience, having weighed providence, having weighed godly counsel, having done all these other things that you do to try to keep your, your path in line with God's will for God's glory at all times. But you have to follow ultimately what you think God is leading you to do in light of all, that, all the rest. When Martin Luther was 37 years old, he was excommunicated by Pope Leo X, summoned in the year 1521 to appear at the Diet of Worms or Worms. A Diet of Worms, I like to say, is not dirt. It's assembly of most of most of the significant political authorities in the Holy Roman Empire to discuss and resolve key issues facing the kingdom. That's a diet. Diet of worms. Luther was summoned. He was to give an account of his teachings before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and answer charges of heresy. What was this heresy? Well, you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Basically, was what he taught. He also rejected the Catholics' teachings on penance, on uh, some of the other things. There was this, the indulgences, a number of things. And so, they accused him of being a heretic. So, he was summoned to appear. And even though his duke, Elector Frederick the Wise, sought and gained for Luther a promise of safe conduct, the Diet of Worms was a dangerous place for Luther to go. And many of his friends and followers said, Luther, don't go. Don't go there. And for good reason. Because about a hundred years earlier, John Huss was promised the same safe conduct, but was seized and burned alive as a heretic. Luther, don't go. He, like the Apostle Paul, was warned by some of his closest friends and followers. And they suspected that the safe conduct was a trap. But he responded, were there as many devils and worms as tiles upon the roofs of the houses, I would still enter it. He had an inner conviction of the Spirit of God that he must go. 
when his closest friends and advisors were saying, why are you doing that? It makes no sense at all. Something bad's going to happen to you. You, We need you in the battle. We need you in the fight for the Gospel. So he went. He went anyway. Given no opportunity to defend his teachings, but commanded to repent of all of his writings, and to give a simple answer, will he recant yes or no? This is how Luther responded. Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is. Plain and unvarnished. Unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Or something to that effect. And Luther paid a dear price for his obedience. Now he was standing, his conscience was bound to the Word of God, which should be ours as well. But the matter of going to the Diet of Worms was a matter of conscience where you don't find a Bible verse that says go to worms or not go to worms. But he was compelled, bound by the Spirit, as was the Apostle Paul, that he must go there. And he did. Of course, it was dangerous and to protect his life, he was uh, hidden away in the Wartburg Castle in seclusion and secrecy for about a year. But he went based upon his conscience. Though others told him not to go, his conscience told him to go. And I think when we're evaluating, if everything else lines up with Scripture, and everything lines up to the best we can to the honor and glory of God, and though we have counselors that tell us otherwise, we follow what the Lord puts on our heart and entrust our lives to the good hand of providence. That's what Luther did. Certainly what the Apostle Paul did. And I think it... uh, it's probably some good, uh, good wisdom and guidance for us as well. And finally, let the brethren dwell together in unity. The will of the Lord be done. As Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. They entrusted Paul to the hands of God. There was no division of fellowship. There was a gracious response. Paul, we we totally disagree with you. Do not go. But you're going anyway. So we love you. We care for you. We entrust you into the hands of God. May God keep you and bless you. So that was a, a gracious response. And I think probably that also is a good guide for us as well. In light of all this, as we turn to decision making, we can look upon the Jesus, Jesus Christ and be so thankful that He set His face like flint to go to Jerusalem also. He didn't listen to the opposing voices of Peter. That Peter told him he should not die if he's, you know, he's not going to die was Peter's counsel. He didn't listen to that. That was not wise counsel. He didn't listen to his own human fears and anxieties in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was wrestling with the burden of 
dying for our sins, but he obeyed the will of God. He followed, we could say, his conscience. He could do no other. It was God's predestined will for him to go to the cross. There's no other way that he could have done it. But he did it. He willingly chose to follow God's path when none of the other disciples understood what in the world he was doing. They didn't agree agree with it. They misunderstood the idea of the kingdom that he was bringing. They didn't understand the cross and the resurrection. But he followed God's predestined will, the Word of God, and he accomplished our salvation. And how thankful we are that he did. That he was not deterred by the influences to pull him away. So that as we turn our thoughts to the Lord's Supper, we can thank God that Christ chose the cross. Again, not that He could have done any other, but He chose the path of suffering so that His obedience is our salvation and His shame and suffering, bearing the weight and the curse and the pain and the hell for our sins is our glory. So that He is worthy of our love and praise. As he faced his own decision, he obeyed the will of God. And in doing so, accomplished our great salvation. As we turn our thoughts to the Lord, a lot of times I think it's helpful to be mindful of Scripture as we reflect and prepare our hearts to celebrate what Christ did for us, to take the elements and let them remind us and draw us ever closer into the presence of Christ to worship Him and love Him and praise Him for His willingness to go and suffer the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. That we can read a verse like 1 Peter 2 that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. Let that sink in. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. Weren't we all? And still. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So as we turn our attention now to the Lord's table. We have the bread and the wine. And I would remind you that this is the Lord's table. And we invite all believers who have repented of your sins and put your faith completely in Jesus Christ alone to save you. To examine your heart, confess any known sin, and then turn your thoughts and prayers and praise and love to Christ for what He's done for us. So you're all welcome. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if not, please let the elements pass you by. We use unleavened bread because it's the best symbol of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. He had to be sinless so He could take upon upon Himself our sin. And we break it as somewhat of an audible reminder of all of the physical and spiritual agony and suffering that Christ went through to save you from the sin that would take you to hell. And we're reminded that His flesh was torn and ripped. His blood was shed as He gave His life as the Lamb of God to save us sinners. And we're reminded of the brokenness that He endured 
Because that was the price to be paid to save us. So if the ushers would please come forward, then I will offer a prayer for the bread and then they will pass it. And then you can partake when you're ready or you can hold it and we'll partake at the end either way. Let's thank God for the bread. Our Father, we want to thank You, Lord, that Jesus Christ faced opposition in going to the cross like Paul, like Luther, but in an infinitely more glorious way. He chose to be obedient to You, to follow Your will for His life. He was not deterred by all the voices and all of His own human fears. And for that, Lord, we just want to thank You and praise You. Because there is no other way for our sins to be forgiven other than through the blood of the Lamb of God who died on Calvary's cross. There is no other religion. There is nothing that we could ever do. No amount of good works could ever save our guilty soul. But merely looking in faith to the Lamb of God who shed His blood brings instant and immediate salvation and forgiveness for all who turn and look. So thank You, Father, for the body of Christ for His suffering on the cross to save us. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen.